Hi friends, it's Francesca. As I mentioned last week, this episode was originally recorded in one sitting, so you are now listening to part two of The Lost Girls. Unfortunately, Alicia couldn't be here for the intro this week. I would definitely encourage all of our listeners that are interested in this case to watch the Unraveled episode with Billy Jensen, as I have said and I will say again during the episode, because it really gives the best update on where the case is now 10 years later. I would also like to remind you all that the information in the last two episodes are from 10 years ago and directly from this book. I don't have any real recent information on the families of the victims as I wanted to respect their privacy as much as I could. That being said, I would like to remind you all that there are of the trigger warnings that I gave in the last episode. We do discuss drug use, physical abuse, and murder at nauseam. The first part is definitely more heavy, but we completely understand that this is not the topic for you. We want all of our listeners to safeguard their mental health first and foremost, so please do not go forward if these topics make you uncomfortable. That being said, make sure you stick around at the end for some fun updates, and let's dive on in. So now we flip back to Maureen, whose escort name was Marie. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was the one she would use. And she would use it while she was working in Manhattan. She did this for a while before getting pregnant with her second child, Aiden, by her boyfriend, Steve. So we can confirm Steve is the father. Ultimately, that relationship fell apart. And Sarah, her friend that I mentioned at the beginning, was struggling on her own. Maureen offered to help Sarah out and kind of taught her the ropes of selling sex. What to do, what not to do, when to post your Craigslist lad who to work with, who not to work with, that kind of thing. Right. Most people know that they were sex workers at the time of her death. So I'm really not going to get into their lives of like what it looked like, what they were doing. Right. So I'm kind of going to just skip towards the end right before they went missing. Right. So right before Maureen went missing, she was really hard on cash. She's about to be evicted from her apartment and... She knew as soon as she got evicted from her apartment, Aiden's father was going to file for sole custody because she didn't have anywhere to live. One rule I'm going to mention that she had was to never go and see a customer alone. She always had a chaperone come with her Mm -hmm. to make sure everything was copacetic. Right. So on July 9th, 2007 in Midtown Manhattan, they had only made $700 that weekend And she had eviction court on Tuesday, and she needed $400 more. So she was in Manhattan with Sarah, and they each had brought their own chaperone. Right. The guys wanted to go back to Connecticut that Monday. They didn't think it was a good idea to stay the extra day, so Sarah tried to convince Maureen to come home to Connecticut with them. And then they would come back to Manhattan to work that that Wednesday, because it was Monday, and Maureen, her roommate, had eviction court on Tuesday. Maureen said no, and that if Sarah promised to come back on Wednesday, that she would just stay at the hotel and hold the room for them. So that was the last time Sarah saw Maureen. Right. So now we're going to flip to Melissa, who went by Chloe as her escort name. She was, Melissa, she was in a very different situation. She didn't start out on Craigslist the way Maureen did. Right. She was working with a pimp. Mm-hmm. which also on its own comes with a lot of rules and regulations and splitting money costs, things like that. Right. Pimp's name was Blaze, Yikes. whose re- real name was Johnny. And Johnny was the one who she told her parents got her the job in the salon, mm-hmm. but he was really her pimp. 
Love that. She was very close friends with a girl named Critzia. I think that's how you say it. Yeah. No it clue. should be on the slide. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's Critzia. So we'll go with that. Critzia worked with another pimp, but the two pimps were like homies. Oh. So it wasn't an issue that they were friends because one of the, the things is you're not supposed to talk to another pimp's girl. Mm-hmm. But since the two guys were friends, it was okay that they were friends. Right. And they would work very closely together, often working jobs together. I also do. I also sent you a screenshot of this quote, but they also said that the men that specifically annoy them are really young white men, which made me cackle. Yeah, mood. Same. Right? Like, <laughs> makes sense. So her, so Kritzia kind of knows that Melissa seems to trust everybody as if no one would hurt her. Well, I feel like, you know, it's not great to be like that in that job. That's not necessarily a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also think that says a lot about Melissa, that she was just a person that cared a lot and wanted to see the best in people. Right. So, like, it's bad, but also good. <laughs> it's bad, but it's good. But it's bad. <laughs> but it's bad. Her family really tried a lot and often to try to get her to move back to Buffalo, but she just wasn't ready. In the spring of 2008, she and Blaze, her pimp, kind of, like, broke up, and she was kind of fed up with the lifestyle. And a quote directly from Kritzia was that, or directly from the author, excuse me, you had to be strong enough to work hard and long in order to convince men to part with their money and weak enough to be on, be there in the first place. So you have to be strong enough to convince them, but weak enough to have to be on the streets in the first place. Right. And she taught, Kritzia talks a lot about street walking and convincing the men in the cars to do it and how how Melissa kind of got fed up with that. She, so Melissa ended up getting assaulted and jumped by a group of women and a man who told her this, that's what she gets for disrespecting him. A witness who saw the assault ultimately identified Blaze as the one who orchestrated it. The author also makes a really good point and says that Craigslist ads have done more to delegitimize the age-old system of pimps and escorts than any platoon of police officers could, which, again, I think is very true. Right. Like, you're not on the streets for cops to come and find you. Right. So, Melissa's friend really didn't trust Craigslist because it's hard to size up a John through a picture, whereas in person you can kind of make a snap judgment if this, that you think this person's going to be safe or not, which I completely, again, I completely agree. So, on Christmas Eve of 2008... Lynn her, and her mom's boyfriend tried to convince Melissa to come back to Buffalo again and she told them she wasn't ready but almost. Melissa goes mi- missing on July 12th 2009. She was last seen that afternoon sitting on the curb outside of her building in the Bronx. When spoken to Blaze said he knew she had this thousand dollar date lined up on Long Island. He knew where the place was and he knew who the customer was. He offered her a ride and she declined. Three days after she went missing, her parents tried to file a missing persons report, but the police kind of just deflect it, basically saying she's an adult with no history of mental illness. So the family, if the family couldn't find her, it wasn't an issue for them. Like, she's an adult. She could go off if she wants to. Mm-hmm. The Buffalo police basically told the family lawyer oh. she's a hooker. <laughs> The Buffalo police. Oh my gosh, I can't fucking stand those guys. Told the family lawyer, she's a hooker, they're not going to sign a detective to look for her. Sounds about right. 
It took 10 days for the cops to finally start a missing persons investigation. Mm-hmm. On July 16th, her sister Amanda's cell phone rang, showing the caller ID as Melissa. She was super excited, only on the other end, for it to be a very calm, very male voice saying it was not Melissa. Ma'am, come get this man. So now Angelina is Shannon's escort name. Mm-hmm. So she started working for an escort service called World Class Party Girls. <laughs> it was run by a man named Joseph Ruaz, and this guy Alex was one of the drivers. So a driver is a person that will take you there, but is also like a source of safety for these girls. Mm-hmm. So basically the more girls that he drove in a night, the more money he was going to make. Right. So he'd go all over the place and he, some of the girls, including Shannon, would bring Coke to help extend the calls past like an hour or two to make more money. Right. Which is something that Mary, Shannon's mom, insists she was not doing drugs. She was not involved in drugs. But anyway. Okay, sure. She was, uh, at the time, Shannon was taking online classes and trying to sing professionally. And she would go into Manhattan during the day for, like, ca- like casting calls. Right. And he would drive Shannon. And when they, like, most of the time when he drive girls, like, they wouldn't talk to him. But Shannon was, like, very personable. And she would always talk to him. And the more he talked to her, the more he was, like, convinced that she was, like, n- did not belong there. <laughs> like, this was the wrong profession for her. Right. And it says literally verbatim in the book, their third night working together, their third, their third date as he thought of it. I'm like, bro, they ended up having sex in the car that night. So okay, they ended up dating and being together up until she disappeared. Like they were together when she disappeared. Damn. Um, Shannon moved to Jersey in early 2008, both to be with Alex and to work more because the company was out of Jersey. Makes sense. And moving in together, Alex got to see more of Shannon's mood swings. Like, one minute she'd be cheerful, and the next she would just be devastated, like, on the floor crying. She had bipolar disorder, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, again, she wasn't... And she didn't take her medication. This, uh, uh, what we know of. Right. That was when she was 12. We don't know if she grew up and said, I need that, like I did, you know? Yeah, I I (laughs) think probably the the answer is no, if she's still having... Maybe, I don't know. I, I just have a feeling the answer is probably no. Just a little, just a little inkling. Yeah. She'd think nothing of spending like 900 or or $1,000 in one, uh, one weekend just to like, sh- like buy gifts for her family. Like she, w- I was almost felt like she was trying to buy their love. Oof. It wasn't like she was intentionally trying to buy their love. Like, right. She was just like, here's a gift. Do you like, do you love me? Like, it wasn't like, here's a gift. We're like so cool. Right. Like it wasn't like that kind of buying of affection. It was that she just wanted affection. And she also made it no secret that what her job was. Like, she wouldn't try to hide from Mary the phone calls that she would get when she was visiting upstate. And eventually, like, she she told one of her friends she was only doing it until she finished school. And to this friend, it was pretty clear that she was still doing it because she was sending money home to her family. Mm -hmm. And he even says, the only time I ever seen Shannon and her mom on good terms was when she started in this business because she was sending money home. Right. So the business ends up getting shut down for prostitution and drugs and the owner ends up getting a year in jail for laundering over three million dollars. Casual. Love to see it. So Alex and Shannon both lost their income. They both tried to go the straight and narrow, but it ultimately didn't work. And while looking for a new agency, that's what brought her to Craigslist. And 
one morning they got her and Alex got in this huge fight. She was drunk and she was trying to like test him, just calling him like a loser, all this stuff. And they were living with Alex's dad at the time. Mm hmm. So she was pushing him, like, trying to start a fight. And Alex is like, shut the fuck up. My dad's right there. Like, why would you do that? And he ultimately hit her in the face. Alex did? Yes. Oh, no. And he ended up fracturing her jaw. And there were two options was either getting her jaw wired shut or having a titanium plate, like, rafted onto the bone. Mm -hmm. And she ultimately got the plate, put it on her jaw. Right. So then that... That fall, she started working for an escort service out of, that was out of the Bronx called Fallen Angels. And that is when she met Michael Pack. He was a free agent. So, he like, any number of agencies could call him and be like, hey, we need you to drive this girl. And he'd be like, okay. And they also, he also, the reason this book is so fucking long is because he gives background on literally every single person that he talks about. So, you get a background on fucking Alex and his debauchery and Michael. <laughs> they, one night that they worked together... They would get calls and then they'd be like, never mind, another girl went. And it was because of the seniority at the escort service. Mm -hmm. Like, Shannon and Michael were both new. So, like, they weren't going to be the first ones to get the call. Right. So, that night was when Shannon and Michael decided they were going to go freelance together and just mm -hmm. work on off Craigslist and he would be her driver. Right. And they were, like, a good team, too. So, like, good on them. I'd love to see it. On the last day of April in 2010, Alex and Shannon went out on a date. They went to go see the latest Freddy Krueger movie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it, like, felt like a real date. Like, Alex says, like, he felt like they were finally in, like, a normal relationship. Right. She told Alex, like, she was going to meet up with Michael after because Alex knew that was her driver. Right. He texted, she texted him around 1 a.m. She's like, I'm about to go in for a call. Uh, she'll call you she'll call him back and he said maybe it ended up with i love you i don't really like no uh-huh so now we flip back to what the story started with so just before 5 a.m on may 1st 2010 the john shannon was working with comes out and tap tap tappies on michael's window and was like yo can you get rid of her can you just like get her out of my house and he's like she won't leave so, at this point, the two of them had done a few calls on Long Island before, but not in this area, not in Oak Beach. Mm -hmm. um, it was three hours into the call when Joe Brewer, the John, who will come up again, came out to get Michael, to get her to leave. Mm -hmm. And he seemed pretty chill. Right. He was like, yo, can you just, like, get rid of her? When they first got there, 20 minutes after, Brewer and Shannon left, presumably to go and get drugs. And Shannon had cleared it with Michael beforehand, just letting him know. And then Shannon called Michael after sh she and Brewer returned because she wanted him to go to a pharmacy to pick up, you know, a few essentials. And Michael didn't want to do it because the CVS was just too fucking far away, which is understandable. And that's when Shannon was like, fine, I'll find my own way home. Mood. Now, Michael obviously did not leave. He, your, your job as a driver is to stay put until you get that girl from point A to home. Mm -hmm. He goes inside to get Shannon and he's like, okay, like, let's go home. And she says, you guys are trying to kill me. <laughs> she looked really scared. She was dead serious. Like, he was like, let's go home. They, they fight for a little bit. And he's like, fine, fuck this. I don't need it. And he's about to leave. And she's like, where are you going? And then she, he's like, what are you, like, what's going on? Like, what? And then he looks down and sees a cell phone in her hand and he hears her say Long Island. And it sounded like she was on the phone with 911, which, like, upset him and confused him even more because obviously their job is illegal. They would never call 911 unless you are bleeding out in the street. That is the only reason any of them would call 911. Mm -hmm. 
that is just like the biggest no-no. Right. Like the first, do not do this. Right. So that's when Michael says he left when he heard that 911 call. Then he lets Brewer know on his way out, oh, she's still inside. Bye. <laughs> and that's when she must have like just picked up and ran. Mm-hmm. That's And that's when he turned on his headlights and like kind of went after her. He tried calling her, but it wouldn't go through. He drove around Oak Beach just looking for her. And that's when... Gus Coletti, the guy from the beginning of the story, came and knocked on his door. I was like, what are you doing around here? And he's like, I'm going to call the cops. Mm-hmm. And so when he went inside to call mm-hmm. the cops, he, Michael drove off and he was like, forget this. Like, she couldn't have run that far. Like, he just left. He just left her there. Piece of fucking shit. Right. Anyway, now we flip to Lexi, who is Megan's escort alter ego. Literally. A lot of New York guys, I guess, would come up to Portland pretty regularly. I don't know why. Yeah, same. The older Megan got, she started hanging out with these New York guys. One of them being Akeem Cruz, or Vibe, as everyone in in Portland knew him. But not even like V-I-B-E, like V-Y-B-E. Okay, sir. Megan considered him the love of her life. Many other people considered him her pimp and abuser. So he came to Portland for to escape some charges he had against him in New York for, let's see what this list is, um, reckless driving, unlawful possession of marijuana, illegal signal, failure to stay in a single lane, and criminal possession of a weapon. I feel like some of those are very unnecessary to add in there. Like the criminal possession of a weapon. Love that. The drug, mm-hmm. drug and reckless driving is enough, I think. I think so, but. But okay. Whatever. So, Vibe's crew sold cocaine, just to be clear. They were drug dealers. Megan's half-sister, Allie, who Lorraine had after, obviously, her and Greg, said that Megan's first uh, escorting gigs were arranged by her ex-boyfriend, not Vibe. But, clearly... By Lorraine's ex-boyfriend? No, by Megan's ex-boyfriend. Okay, okay, okay. So, most nights, Lily was... At this point, like, six months old and just living with Muriel and David, her new husband. Right. At this point. Right. And she was, Megan was kind of just doing a lot of drugs, you know? So, Megan saw her relationship with Vibe as, like, kind of a a security blanket. That It was security for Lily, uh, the chance at money, and to be able to leave, like, a trailer park. Right. For what seemed like love. Right. So, they lived at a hotel together, basically. He would just play, it literally says Vibe would play Madden NFL on his PlayStation and Megan would do her nails. Love it. So Vibe would post her Craigslist ads for her. And when her brother Greg found out that she was doing this, he's like, I wanted to kill her myself. Which, okay, bro. Damn. All right. Cool it. So in spring of 2009, Megan and Vi made their first trip to Long Island. On May 13th, she posted new in town, model type. On June 16th, she posted sweet, sexy, and seductive. On June 13th, cherry blossom beauty. This time offering to do out calls for a little extra. So an in call is when the the John would come to you in your hotel. Okay. An out call would be when you go to them. Makes sense. And it's always seems, it it's safer to do 
an in call, I think, for them. Uh-huh. Because you're, they're not walking into a room or a house that they have not vetted yet. Right. That isn't safe. Right. At least that's my opinion. I don't know. I always part, well, I can't say this because it was never a one-time like hookup thing, but like at least when I was in college, I preferred going to his house so they didn't know where I lived. <laughs> yeah. See, it, I feel like it's a, a double-edged sword. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, okay. I feel like meet at a neutral place. Right. Make him buy you a hotel room and you go in with him. You are the first one to enter that room. So you can be like, okay, he didn't set up any scary shit in here. Right. But that's just me. That's just from the years of true crime documentaries that I've watched. (laughs) She really had no good way of vetting her John's because she was posting on Craigslist, as we've mentioned. She ended up getting robbed twice while she was on Long Island, Eek. which given that she was staying in Hop Hog, that kind of makes sense. But Where was I she also staying? found it in Hop Hog, which oh, 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 oh. my most visceral memory of anything about Hop Hog is that that's where I took my driving test, my road test for, for the first time, which yeah, yeah, that face you just made, the mm-mm, yeah, when I did it through a driving school, so like I could use their card for my road test. Mm-hmm. And when they found out that I was getting it in Hop Hog, they're like, you couldn't get it anywhere else because it's really fucking hard to pass your road test in Hop Hog. I As I learned, because I failed it, like, so bad. No. Yeah. So fuck Hop Hog. Do, do they have a lot of, like, one-way streets? No. And, like, roundabouts They have, like, there's, a, there's one trick spot where it's a stop sign and then you pull up again and it's a stop sign. Mm-hmm. And I remembered that and I... I did it both times, but I fucked up my parallel parkings so exponentially that, like, the middle of my fender was in line with their outer light. Like, I was so far from the curb because I got so nervous. That's but so anyway. funny. I actually hit the curb on my three-point turn, but I still passed. Ooh. I, I did my, my... I passed my second time. I passed um, my I, first. I had, like, 20 points, and I think you could, if you get 30, you fail, so... Anyway, back to the story. So she was robbed twice on Long Island. <laughs> And Lorraine, her mother, actually found out that Megan was doing Craigslist online at the supermarket. Ooh. Love that. So when confronted by Elaine... Elaine. mm, (laughs) Lorraine. Lorraine. Thank you. I'm not even drinking, and this is just happening. So when confronted by Lorraine with this, she told her that her and Vibe had plans for the money, that they were going to buy an apartment and get married... And that's what this money was for. But (laughs) sure, Jan. She also, but like Megan also did more than just escort. She was helping Vibe deal. And she was also one of his customers. So. Isn't that like the first rule that they tell you? Like you can't, you shouldn't like use from your own supply. Is that not a rule? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I barely take the drugs I'm prescribed. So (laughs) you won't catch me doing drugs I don't have to take. So, the police knew about Vibe's whole operation in Portland and actually staged a raid, and they arrested him and three others when they found drugs and weapons in their hotel room. But the whole matter ended up getting thrown out of court because they did not have a search warrant. Woo! So, on May 31st, she and Vibe were packing up for another trip to Long Island, and she had told everyone that this was going to be her last trip. She just needed a little bit of extra money to get Lily into daycare and to get a little bit more money for her apartment with Vibe, and then they would be done. So Friday, May, t- May 5th, 2010, in, on ho- in Hop Hog on Long Island, 
very specific. Megan had checked in to, alone to a Holiday Inn Express on this bare stretch of the LIE, the Long Island Expressway. I'm going to be honest to all of our Long Island listeners, which I bet is zilch, zero. <laughs> I was absolutely shocked when the Comac Motor Inn was not mentioned because the Comac Motor Inn is like a notorious hotspot to go... To bang? To meet. Yeah. Love like, that. Like, they do hourly rates. Love that! Like, it is notorious for this. So when I heard that no one was staying there, I was like, what? Anyway. <laughs> so she checks into this hotel. So at 8 o'clock, the security camera catches Vibe and Megan leaving the hotel. At 8.30, she comes back alone. And just before midnight, most of she calls Nikki, her brother's wife, at around like 11. And Nikki's like, it's really late. I'm going to bed. I'll call you tomorrow. Sometime after midnight... Megan posts a Craigslist ad. Ten minutes later, at 1.30, the security camera in the lobby of the hotel records Megan walking through the automatic sliding doors. A witness later says that they walked past Megan, probably walking towards a nearby convenience store, which is, like, a good meeting place, perhaps, for a John who didn't want to be seen. Perhaps. Vibe calls one of her friends the next day and is like, have you heard from Megan? I haven't heard from her. And... She's like, nah, like, don't worry about it. She'll be back. But Megan's phone was going straight to voicemail, and they knew Megan never turned off her phone. At 6 in the morning, Vibe comes back to her room, and the concierge wouldn't let him get access to the room, but the concierge themselves went up to check to see if she was sleeping, and, like, opened and went into the room, and she wasn't there. Oh, okay. Vibe actually calls the cops, which is huge shocking yeah he didn't do it in person he just told them what she was wearing because of his criminal records he didn't go in like i said for in person and for the next week he didn't tell anyone where exactly he was so love that for him but the the cops (laughs) bitch (laughs) the cops eventually caught up to him right when he got back to portland the police were more careful and they got a warrant this time they seized 13 grams of coke with a report Reported street value of $1,300, no bail was set this time, and Vibe had become everyone's prime suspect in Megan's disappearance. And his fa- her, in her family's view, they viewed him as like a human trafficker. And while he was in jail, he said nothing to nobody. So Mur- uh, Muriel and Lorraine kind of cooperated at first. That was until Lorraine found out Me- Muriel was angling to get custody of Lily. Well, uh, I mean... She was like, she was really mad, obviously. And she was going to share, she wanted to share custody with Liz, her oldest daughter, Mm -hmm. not Lorraine. So in that August on a show on CNN, they put Lorraine on the air to talk about Megan's disappearance. And everyone was like, what the fuck? (laughs) What? And it says, even as she was genuinely mourning, Lorraine was offered a, a chance to be something she never was in real life. A devoted mom, mother who had a close relationship with her loving daughter, Muriel watched from Crystal Springs, could hardly believe her eyes. Like, everyone was like, what the fuck is she doing? Because she's portraying... Lorraine started to portray herself as, like, this grieving mother who who just wanted the, like just wanted to find her daughter and, like... <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> now we're up to Amber, Carolina. So... Kim, her si- like, as I mentioned, Kim, her sister, was now living 
uh, on Long Island. She was working at a pizzeria in Northport. To be clear, Kim has three children back in North Carolina, and she now has three more kids with a new boyfriend on Long Island. Okay. Okay. At her job at the pizzeria, she meets a guy named Dave, who thinks she's really pretty, and they become friendly. He's 32 years old. I don't know how old Kim is at this point, but he's 32. He lives in West Babylon, so they become, like, good friends, and just, they hang out a lot, and she kind of tells him a more watered-down version of her life, you know. Right. Leaving out some key details. Doesn't really tell him about the drugs and the, the sex work. She was living with her boyfriend and their kids with his parents, and Mike's parents, her boyfriend's parents, were the ones really taking care of the child care. Like, they had signed over custody of their three kids to his parents. Damn. Yeah. So they were hanging out. Like, sometimes Dave would even talk to Kim's oldest daughter. Like, they were homies. <laughs> One person that frequently called drunk was Amber. She really wanted to come up to Long Island. She was living at Flor- in Florida at this point, And Kim really did not like the idea of Amber coming to Long Island. She was not happy about it. <laughs> Dave really wanted to help her. So first he sends Amber money for a plane ticket to come up. And she blew it on getting high. So he sends her another plane ticket. And in February of 2010, Amber arrived at MacArthur Airport in Islip, which is like a much smaller airport. Like most rich people use it for like their private planes. But they do do like domestic flights there sometimes too. Right. I've never personally flown out of there. I'm JFK all the way. Of course. Aren't we all? Yes. One of my friends prefers LaGuardia and I'm like, honey, what? What's wrong? Is she okay? I can take the air tram from anywhere. Like, you can get on a train on Long Island and be in JFK without having to drive. Right. Who the fuck wants to drive to an airport? Thank you. But I digress. Upon her arrival, Dave finds Amber a spot at Nassau University Medical Center in East Meadow for detox, and then a bed in a 36-day rehab facility in St. Charles, which is in Port Jeff. He would go and visit Amber every weekend. Kim never visited once. Of course not. In 2005... Their mom died after an ulcer, repeatedly ruptured, and that was when Amber moved to Florida, when her sister and her boyfriend at the time were living in Florida, and then the two of them dipped to Long Island and Amber stayed. The second marriage, she married again in 2007, was to a man in Florida, and that's where they they joined a church, she worked in the nursery there, like, they really had every... like pretense of being like this normal happy family right and even like the church they were helping a couple who was having some problems amber and her husband stepped in to take care of that couple's child oh wow amber was so happy she was so happy but that marriage ultimately ended in march of 2009 after 15 months with her husband saying she wasn't truthful during their marriage Oh, no. That same month, she was arrested at a Publix for trying to shoplift toothpaste. If that tells you anything about the highs and the real low lows. <laughs> so she wanted to move to Long Island to really clean up her act for good. While in rehab, she made a friend named Bjorn Broski. Bro- Brodsky. But he goes by Bear. So for the duration of this, we're just going to call him Bear. And the Bear and Amber move in with Dave after rehab. And just the three of them become like the three musketeers. They're having a grand old time. And they really, they could see how, like how much Amber loved them. And she could be very territorial about it. Mm -hmm. And Kim started visiting less and less. 
And Dave said he felt like a divorced stay-at-home dad, (laughs) which is, like, too funny. So eventually Kim asks Dave if he'd start being their driver for Craigslist ads. Amber basically said, can you protect me? Like, if I do this, will you protect me? And he really saw them, like, as sisters and things like that. And Amber asked Bear to do it, too. Dave kind of looked at himself more as, like, a bodyguard and less as, like, a pimp. Like, he was protecting them. Mm-hmm. So, like, their deal was that they would set it up, get, like, the guys, get the money, and then 15 minutes in, Bear or Dave would come charging in, be like, get the fuck off my wife, and, like, set up this thing. Oh, So the oh guys would run out and leave behind the money. Love that. And the women wouldn't have to do anything. Sometimes it was an issue, and Bear even says, I'm talking naked, dick swinging out the front door. Shit. But sometimes, you know, guys would be like, no, like, give me my money back. And immediately Dave would be like, give him the money back. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> I, I'm not going to get punched in the face for this. Carolina, which was Amber's escort name, right. was really starting to make, like, a name for herself. And Kim was, like, kind of starting to use her sister in the sense that, like, she, anytime Amber would make some money, Kim would come along and invite herself on a shopping spree. Like, oh, so Bear was the first one to start using again. And then Amber started using again. And eventually, you know, Amber, again, as I mentioned, she is 5'11". 4'11". Not 5'11". Excuse me. She is 4'11". She was doing 20 to 30 bags of heroin a day. Holy shit. Yeah. So in July of 2010, he kind of just like had a moment of clarity and... Brought her to Manhattan to detox for a few days. She came back and he just stopped pressing the point of how much drugs she was doing. Nice. Because at this point, she was like the economic powerhouse of this house. Like she was the one bringing in the most money. Right, right. So by September 2nd, 2010, West Babylon. So at four or five o'clock, Amber placed an ad on Craigslist. She talked to one guy and they arrived at 1500 for the night. Damn. Damn, I wish that were me. He would pick her up around 11 and have her back by 6 or 7 the next morning. It was a little unusual because she normally didn't do out calls. It was usually them coming to her. But something just made her trust this guy. Um, So Dave says he walked her over to the corner of the lawn. They hugged and she got in the car. Dave says that he might have looked down the street at the taillights of the car, but he was too high to remember. (laughs) Dave called Kim while she was in North Carolina because Amber had been gone for three days. And Kim's like, ah, oh, don't worry about it. She'll come back. A few days later, she did not come back. <laughs> okay. Bringing in, the pol- bringing in the police seemed like a bad idea. So Am- Kim did nothing. She just hoped she found some new people. Ma'am. Bear called Dave and is like, is Amber back yet? What's going on? Bear just had a feeling she was lying in a dish somewhere. He's like, that girl, I'm telling you, she's dead. So this is where we kind of get an interlude of... Oak Beach as a place and the history of Oak Beach and its residents. As I said in the beginning, it is a very close-knit community. They kind of operate outside of the township of Babylon on their own. And it really is very cut off. Like, it's like 20 miles to the closest grocery store. Like, it is not a self-contained town, but it's a self-contained housing association. Got it. Ocean Parkway brought the world to the rest of Oak Beach because most of the time before that I guess they were rowing to the town which this was in 1933 so before that kind of makes sense okay okay but also fuck Robert Moses to be clear oh fuck Robert Moses fuck Robert Moses let me tell you we used to have the the Robert Moses Parkway uh in the area and they've since renamed it 
couple years ago, maybe five years ago, to the Niagara Scenic Parkway. <laughs> Love that. We have Robert Moses Beach. Ooh, oh yeah, that's right. Um, so fuck Robert Moses in the biggest way. But anyway, I digress. So yeah, we get like this huge backstory about just like the town of Oak Beach as itself. So now I'm going to talk about one of the residents in particular. His name is Peter Hackett. Oh, absolutely not. No. Why? Just Hackett? No. (laughs) I don't trust it. Kind of reminds me of Richard Hatch, who was the Survivor winner of the first season of Survivor. I'm going to give you a brief overview on Hackett. He is an amputee doctor, and I say amputee doctor in that he is an amputee and he is also a doctor. Um, he has a missing, like, leg. I think it's like a calf and down. Anyway, this guy was very prone to embellishing his stories a little too much to make himself seem like a bigger man. Aren't all men. Yeah. And he was a huge suspect, suspect in everybody's mind at the time of this investigation when it first started back in 2010. Like I said, please, 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 please go and watch The Unraveled. His investigation is so thorough and it is so blatantly obvious, not the doctor. He was the prime suspect because of a phone call he made to Mary Gilbert in which Mary Gilbert believes he told her that he said he had Shannon and that he ran home for Wayward Girls and that he was a doctor and he was taking care of her. Hackett denies First, he denied calling her, and then he admitted that he did after the phone records came out saying that he called her twice, but he denies her saying that. So he is kind of a central theme of this book of did he do it? Did he not do it? People trying to prove that he did it. And there are some pieces of evidence that kind of show like maybe he did do it that we'll get into later, but he is kind of a central figure in this book because of the time that it was written. They also talk about several other serial killers that have operated on Long Island and that they they bring up other murder victims that have been found. So there was some more recently 50 miles away from where the four bodies were discovered in Oak Beach. Mm-hmm. In Manorville, there were four more bodies there. Fun. Which, again, 50 miles away, it's further out east, like, much further. That's pretty far. Yeah. And that includes tw- the uh, 20-year-old sex worker, Jessica Taylor, whose heads and hands have been cut off. And the Manorville killer has never been found. Jessica Taylor is often, I don't want to say lumped in, but considered part of the four that we're discussing with this book. Mm-hmm. I don't know if necessarily, if I agree with that theory, that she was part of the same killer because she was found so far away. Right. It's like the hands and 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 head and feet being cut off is that like part of the mo is that why she's getting lumped in or well they they think that it might be part of it because she was dismembered okay because the other victims were dismembered okay okay i can, so i guess i can see that but it is still kind of far that's 50 it's miles is a very lot. far yeah that's like basically like an hour away that's far i just want to bring up the doctor he plays kind of a role in this but in my personal opinion he has nothing to do with this <laughs> I think that he tried by call. I think by calling Mary, he was trying to make himself a bigger player in this than he was because he had that history of like trying to make himself seem more important than he is. Right. So I think he was trying to do that with Mary of like calling her and being like, oh, like I saw her. I Right. Joe Brewer, the John that Shannon went to see that night, he there, he's another one that like people speculated, but... Again, I don't think he has enough brain cells to do this. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) There was speculation that there was a drifter living in 
Brewer's house that might have committed this crime. I don't believe it either, that theory either, but Brewer kind of just seemed like he wanted to be like, he says he tried to help her. Like, it just like he, she ran off. And Alex and Brewer the next day, like, walked around with pictures of Shannon in the neighborhood and were like, have you seen this girl kind of thing. Right. It's kind of like that thing. Like, he really, the two of them wanted to, like, seem like they were more important than they were. But I don't think they had anything to do with this, to be quite honest. So, yeah. So, Hackett called Mary and denied it for a year. And then it came out that he actually fucking did because he's stupid. So, by mid-August... That's when the Suffolk County police start knocked on Gus's door. The one that Gus was the one that Shannon had run to and asked for help. Right. The same one that responded to the 911 calls from the neighbors that morning. And he said the reason that they were looking was because a missing persons report had been filed for Shannon in New Jersey. All this time later now, they're looking into the case. And even Gus is like, it's been all this time. Someone really fucking dropped the ball. They found a jacket near the ground where Shannon was last seen. But oops, it was misplaced by authorities. And it took so long for the cops to get to Oak Beach from Shan- because of Shannon's 911 call because she wasn't specific enough with her location to get help. And she hadn't been on the line long enough to get a trace when she was on the, lo- on the phone for 23 fucking minutes. <laughs> so when she said she thought she might be near Jones Beach, she was transferred to the state police department because Jones Beach is their jurisdiction and they never dispatched a call or car. State police are not my favorite people, so I'm not going to speculate. <laughs> there was also security cameras pointed at the entrance of Oak Beach that get taped over every two weeks. And you would think someone in the community would be like, okay, this girl just ran through here hot on her wheels. Like, maybe we should keep, keep that tape just in case. Just in fucking case. Nobody fucking kept it. And there are no security footage of Shannon entering or exiting or any of the night because... No one kept the fucking tape. Love that. They start talking about the canine units and like basically how they found the first body was a cop, a retired cop was taking his dog to search all over Oak Beach for these bodies because his dog had the body sniffing one. It was a body sniffer oh, yeah, instead yeah, yeah. of like a dog, a uh, drug sniffer, right. you know? People speculate they think that the cop might have just let his dog out to take a shit on the side <laughs> of the road and that's how they found the bodies. Right. In the book, they speculate that he was, or not speculate, they say that he went out looking for the bodies. Whichever one you like better. They found the bodies. Right. So at about 2.45 p.m. on Saturday, December 11th, 2010, along the parkway near Gilgo Beach, that is where they found the body in Burlap. It was a skeleton. They found three more just like it two days after the first four So four sets of bones in all. Staggering roughly one-tenth of a mile intervals along the parkway. And it seemed very deliberate. So the police ended up searching Joe Brewer's house and there was no reason to believe that he was involved. He said he did a polygraph. The police never confirmed the results right away. The police also talked to Michael Pack. He would later say he also passed a polygraph test. However, unlike Brewer, Pack's name never leaked to the press. And he would neither of them would be confirmed suspects or persons of interest. Right. The fact that there's no security footage. Nobody is saying anything. It, like, suggests a broader conspiracy within the community that they're trying to to protect one of their own, which is, again, why Peter Hackett has been such a big question mark. Reporters started requesting Shannon's 911 call, and then the police, like, refused to release it because nobody else knew that she had been bounced between jurisdictions for, like, a half an hour. Oh, my gosh. So the deputy inspector does say that uh, Shannon on the tapes was drifting in and out of intoxica- uh, intoxication. 
concluding that there's nothing to indicate she's a victim of crime on those calls, which... <laughs> but there are three witnesses saying that they saw Shannon running and screaming for her life. So... Okay. Okay. Okay, sir. Sure. Now there are four bodies to contend with and none of them were identified. So this is where the part where I said, fuck Nancy Grace in our text messages. Fuck Nancy Grace. Oh, fuck Nancy Grace. She conducted a live uh, remote interview with Megan's mother and Lorraine said that the police had contacted her about Megan's case and expected them to come for like a DNA sample. And she's just like, she gets involved and does not need to be, you know? Right. It's reported that all the bodies are at different levels of decomp. This is part where I'm going to quote directly. It says that Long Island might be home to a serial killer. Grace broken. Nancy Grace. Hello. She said it's a serial killer. The same man killed all four women. And there's probably more. Shut the fuck up. Shut up. Shut up. Anyway. So now we meet Richard Dormer. He is the police commissioner at the time when all this Uh is happening. He's also late in his retirement. Like he's about to retire. So he would just like to wrap this up. Oh, no. No. Which is not going to happen. He tries. He tries. I'll give him that. He tries, and it doesn't work. So the cops shut down 10 miles of Ocean Parkway between Toby Beach and the Robert Moses Causeway. Fuck Robert Moses. (laughs) And have teams of officers just searching. But one thing that Dormer does say, like I said, he was trying to wrap this up nicely because he was going for retirement. He said, this is an anomaly. Don't worry about it. Right. It really wasn't clear how long the bodies had been out there because of the saltwater decomposition and just, like, the bones. It just, it was really hard. Right. And it was also speculated that the killer might have ritualistically cleaned the bones, too, Mm -hmm. to make it look like they were older than they were. So, none of the bodies had that titanium plate in the jaw, so Mm -hmm. it was clear that it was not Shannon. Right. And Joe Brewer fucking says... He goes, this has been a tough time for me, but I'm not the victim here. Those four girls are the real victims. Which, finally, someone fucking says it. Right. Someone says it. Dormer creates, like, this task force. And the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit, Spencer Reed. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. He's fictional, but I wish he wasn't. Kind of get involved. At this point, if you know anything about the case right now, you know that the future commissioner actually blocked FBI involvement for many years. Because he was covering up for his cop buddy. But I digress. I hate, hate that. So they talked to Joel Rifkin, who is one of Long Island's most notorious serial killers, who has denied that these bodies are his. Um, But he said that the reason a lot of serial killers will target target sex workers is because most of the time they don't have family that will be looking for them. Mm -hmm. Especially in a case where they're coming from far away. There's nobody on Long Island looking for them. Right, right. In late January, that's when the DNA samples were all positively identified. And by January 25th, that's when they acknowledged they were looking for a serial killer. Sarah gets a call from Maureen when she's stuck in traffic on the highway, like with Matt, their, their, what's it called, bodyguard, I guess. And she's like, oh, I'll call her back later. And Maureen tries calling her sister Missy. And Missy's like, I'm not coming to get you. So on Tuesday, Missy tried calling Maureen because that was at like midnight. And Maureen, Missy's like, I'm not like, no. She tried calling, but there were no answers. 
And Missy knew something was wrong right away because Maureen would never willingly be out of touch with Caitlin or Aiden for that long. Right. So records show Maureen checking out not on Monday, but on Tuesday, the day she was supposed to be back in court. Missy rushed to her sister's apartment in Norwich, which had already been cleaned the fuck out because she missed eviction court. So bye. There goes all your shit. Right. And so... As months roll by, Missy's trying to stay on top of this, like calling the police in Groton, calling New York, trying to make progress on her sister's case. And that's when we find out on August 14th, 2009, their younger brother, Will, actually dies in a car accident, which is like, it's so tragic when you read the story. When Maureen didn't show up at her brother's funeral, Missy knew she was gone for good. So Amanda received eight phone calls in total asking if this was Melissa's sister, asking if she was mixed race. And he would only talk to Amanda. Like if Lynn picked up, they would immediately hang up. They would try and trace the cell signal and the cell towers would ping in like Times Square in Madison Square Garden. And they wondered if the caller was commuting to Midtown from Long Island. The call, but the calls were too short to like narrow down a location. And the last call came on August 26, 2009, where he said, I'm watching your sister's body rot. Oh, okay. All right. Pack it up. The grandmother, Lynn's mother, her grandmother, uh, passed of heart failure just weeks after Melissa's disappearance. And it takes until the end of January to find out that Melissa was the one that the cop and his dog had discovered on December 11th, the first of the four bodies. So Lorraine had been 10 years sober at this point. She was working on getting a medical assistant license, uh, medical assistance degree. We find out that Lily is living with Muriel, um, just as Megan did for most of her fucking childhood. And Lorraine was fully ready to blame everything that happened on Megan mm-hmm. on Muriel because that's just what she fucking does. Some of Megan's friends were really astonished to see Lorraine acting the way she did, like, as a family spokesperson after Megan went missing. But she, so, like, she was, like, trying to, like, play herself off as, like, the good mom on TV, you know what I mean? Right. So, Lily was five years old at this point. Wow. When her mom died, yeah. Now we kind of flip to Amber, who disappeared in September, and Kim was very hard to find at that point. (laughs) And Kim was in North Carolina with her dad at a nursing home when she got the call about from Dave about the girl, the bodies found. She knew, she knew it was her sister. The services had been arranged largely by Dave, who received money from a local pre- pastor to put the services together. Kim ended up stepping in and took Amber's ashes and the cash from the priester, cash from the pastor, not priester pastor (laughs) the priester and promised to bury them in wilmington and have another service but that never actually happened of course of course it didn't of course so the second that missy heard about gilgo she knew that maureen had to be one of them and that is kind of how the the women all found each other on facebook was like prowling Mm -hmm. like the information so they all became facebook friends And it started out with Missy and Lorraine and then quickly widened to include Cherie and Mary and Melissa's aunt and Kim, like all of them. So they all like kind of started their own memorial pages on Facebook. So on March 29th, they spread out like the search and that was when they found the fifth body. There was no titanium plate and it was located a full mile away from where the other bodies were found. And it was, like, 30 feet in from the highway, not just, like, on the edge, like, as the others were found. And then five days later, on April 4th, the day before my birthday, they found three more bodies. Oh, fun. Happy birthday, Francesca. (laughs) 
Yes, this was, I was turning 15. <laughs> Love that for me. They didn't fit the initial pattern. They weren't wrapped in burlap and have been left for a longer time. And one of the torsos had been, that had been found was actually connected to a body that had been found in Manorville. So again, it's undetermined. But the, um, so the remains that have been found on the 29th, that was, they were part of the tor the body of Jessica Taylor who had been found in Manorville in 2003, just to be clear. So they found the body of a small old Asian man with what appeared to be women's clothes, a child, no more than a toddler wrapped in a blanket. I believe the other was a woman. The b phone calls that have Amanda had received in Buffalo were well covered, I'm assuming, in Buffalo. You were probably like 12, so I don't think you would remember this. No. Yeah. Blaze, her pimp. You know what? Also, also sorry to, to, to interrupt, but also during this time, there was also a serial killer in Buffalo called the Bike Path Rapist. Oh. That definitely got, Oof. yeah, that definitely got way more um, coverage than this. Mm -hmm. um, and that was way, it was way more um, of a, of a pressing issue since it was taking place in Amherst slash Buffalo. So that's another yeah. reason I'm sure that's I don't fair. remember it. So Blaze, her pimp, also claimed that he was getting weird phone calls. And the police traced his phone calls, not to Megan's cell phone, but a disposable cell phone registered to Mickey Mouse. Oh, awesome. Yes. Disney, where is, the, where is my check? Where is that man's check? <laughs> <laughs> April 11th, the body count jumped to 10. Oof. When they found human remains on Jones Beach in a wildlife sanctuary which also demonstrated links to other unsolved cases further out on Long Island, like Jessica Taylor's. Mm -hmm. So basically Shannon, uh, Shannon's mom really starts to like go after Peter Hackett because the cops really aren't doing anything and like puts his name out into the news saying like, I got phone calls from him. He expressly denies it. Again, we do find out later on. He did call her. And on the anniversary of the day Shannon went missing, they, her family and some of her friends went down to Oak Beach and planned to retrace her steps and just, as they put it, raise hell and just r go running through the streets, screaming. So now this is the part where the author kind of meets directly with the families and gets a, a broader picture of, of them. So you get, like, all the families get together for a meal and they meet and basically this is how you kind of get a sense more of their personalities based off of their quotes, like, Mary is like, oh, she would never, you know, do drugs and all these things. And Kim's like, you don't know. Right. Like, I, I did that shit. Like, I lived that life. Like, right. you don't know what happened to her. You need to be prepared that there's another outcome to this that you don't want to believe. Right. And Mary's, like, very up on her own oh, high horse. Just, mm. So they do several vigils. Um, and again, Mary is just like rallying against the cops and is just like, they're doing nothing, which was kind of true. So Kim disappears again after their first vigil in June. Like, no, she's not answering phone calls or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Mary got mad at Missy because she planned to visit Oak Beach again to go looking for Shannon. And Mary was mad that she wasn't Oh included. my gosh. Not everything has to be about yeah. you, Mary. Fuck off. Mm-hmm. So now Kritzia's back, Melissa's friend- and she had been in kind of her own, dealing with her own shit when all of this was happening. So finding about out about Melissa was just such a shock for her. Mm -hmm. And kind of part of the reason why she stopped escorting, I guess you could say. Right. Sex working. 
she says now, like, the walking, the, the street walking was too much for Melissa, and that's why Melissa started advertising on Craigslist. Right. Was because it was too much for her. Right. Colker gets to talk to Blaze, like, mm-hmm. on the phone, and he says this when asked, like, what he loved most about Melissa. He goes, the way she would go hard for me. The way that she had loved me, the way she was there for me, no matter what people oh, said. Oh, so it's all about you. And I'm just like, that's exactly what I said. I was like, okay, but can you talk about her that's disgusting. for a second? Yeah. That's exactly what I said. I'm glad I'm not like that bitch no. that said that. Yeah, okay. no. Okay, so the, your favorite thing about her was all the things she did for you. Tell me you're self-absorbed without telling me you're self-absorbed. Thank you. Yeah, right? Sarah also didn't stop working after Maureen disappeared. She kept working steadily until 2009, uh, which was about two years after she disappeared. When she found out, like, what happened to Maureen, that's when she added it to her list of reasons Mm -hmm. to stop. She had only known Sarah for six months before she disappeared. Damn. This is more about, like, how the family's dealt with the aftermath when he's talking to Greg. And he got really upset because Lorraine posted... A Facebook message about how these girls, like the vic- other victims' families, Mary, Lynn, M- Missy, all of them, were her new family. And he's like, what the fuck? Like, you can't even call Megan your daughter, like, because you didn't fucking raise her. But we find out that basically Kim has started working again as an escort um, because she wants to catch whoever did this. Oh. Which so many ways yeah. of a bad idea. Yeah, that okay. just seems like a bad idea. A very, very bad idea. And then Richard Dormer comes forward belie- saying the police believe it's one person mm-hmm. that did this, which they've retra- since retracted that and said, uh, no, we think multiple different people oh, have done okay. this. Because you can't, it's just, it's too much distinction between the different, not like the four girls, definitely there was one person, right. but like the bodies oh, of Manorville. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That makes sense. And the extra ones yeah. they found. Yeah. I, I agree. A hundred percent. They also think that Shannon was an accident, what happened to her. Mm-hmm. And that she drowned in the marsh behind... I think I did hear about... Like, separating. I feel like I did hear about Shannon's case. It sounded familiar. Yeah, you probably yeah, did. Yeah, it sounds familiar, for sure. And it was just hard. Yeah, so they thought that Shannon, when she was running, she ran tried to run through the marsh behind the community to try and get to, like, as a shortcut to get to the causeway, Mm -hmm. which the marsh is just, like, a cesspool of, like, gross shit, like, murky water, gross plants, and, like, a haven, mosquito heaven. Ugh. They think that she most likely tripped over, like, a a drainage Mm -hmm. ditch, and that's how, and then, like, drowned in, like, six feet of, like, six inches of water because they still believe that she had drugs in her system. Right. But her family absolutely does not believe that. They refuse to believe um, that. Okay. She had been, uh, she was found two days after the first anniversary after, of the four girls missing. Okay. Yeah. So, the family really is insistent that, like, this wasn't a death. An accidental death. Yeah. Dormer is, like, convinced that Shannon isn't part of it, though, because she wasn't working alone. She Michael Pack was there. Right. And she got away. Right. Which, it's just, like, it's hard to... It's it's really hard. Like, I go back and forth on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the author interviews Dormer and Verone, the lead investigator on it, and my favorite quote is, but Verone, like Dormer, was a lame duck. <laughs> like, yes. Because... He quotes that Verone said, this guy, this killer, 
is making them an offer that they find very hard to resist. Agree and greed gets the best of them. In fact, most of them are in the business that they're in because it's an easy way to make money and because they're greedy. Almost like right very shy of victim blaming. Oof. Like right on the cusp. Right. Mm, don't like that. Don't like that. Not a good look. It's just not a good look. At 11.30 a.m. on December 13th, almost a year to the day after they discovered the first four bodies, that is when they announced that they found Shannon's remains. And I'll go into some inconsistencies that I remember with her body, but I just want to get through these families first. Right. Mary has a new lawyer, John Ray, who she says is like working on behalf of her and the rest of the victims. Right. And he wrote a letter to the cops that basically said if they don't hand over this case to the FBI, she's going to sue. Yikes. Missy like didn't know that John Ray was going to be acting as right behalf of her. And she never saw the letter written to the cops. So when she got a hold of it, she was pissed because it says on behalf of the sex worker murder victims. So it's sh- it says Shanna and the sex worker murder victims. Right. So suddenly it's Shannon and the rest of them are sex workers. Okay. And then they put up like this, they erect crosses in the place where all of the women were found. Right. And Mary seems to find a cross two or three times the size of the rest of them. Of course. And erects it right where Shannon, Shannon is, which is like slightly behind right. them. There's a photo of her, like where she just falls to her knees and is crying. And she puts it on Facebook and ins- puts the caption, the day my life changed forever. And I'm sorry, but I-, I understand everyone grieves differently. But, like, that is so fucking performative to me. Right. I can't. I can't. I can't. So, <laughs> Sh- Missy kind of holds back. Missy also expresses she thinks that Shannon's death was accidental, too. Until otherwise told differently. Right. This is what the cops are telling her. And it's fair to want to trust your legal system again this was nearly 10 years before the rest of this shit came out right they also he also notes that hurricane sandy hit on october 29th 2012 and i have trauma memories from that because the night before hurricane sandy hit was the first night that i fell and broke my first ankle because that was the weekend of our homecoming like homecoming was the day hurricane sandy hit that's the only reason i remember that but he makes a note of saying that a lot of the towns were affected like long island was deeply affected by hurricane sandy between flooding and just the intense weather like i know people who's had who had trees dropped on their houses school was closed for like a month and a half right which was great for me but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that he mentions how even though Hurricane Sandy hit and these crosses were right on the water, like right there, they all stood. Right. They all stayed standing. Damn. That's crazy. So on November 15th, Shannon's family uh, filed a wrongful death suit against Peter Hackett, the, the doctor. It was designed so that it requires Hackett and other members of the community to be deposed in court. So even though they're likely never going to see any money from it, they're going to be on the record with their stories. And then just a little update on the rest of the families. Lynn had Melissa cremated and brought back to Buffalo. Hope she's buried at Forest Lawn like the queen deserves. Well, so the problem with Melissa's was that they found some of her body first and they had that cremated and had a funeral for it. And then the cops reached out after they found the other body parts and said we found more of Melissa, which devastating but it would have cost thirty four hundred dollars to 
cremate the rest of her, which is insane. But a detective that had worked on Melissa's case in the NYPD knew someone else that could do it for cheaper. So when they went to go pick up her right the, her urn from this detective, he had draped an American yeah. flag over the right. container and had on his white dress uniform gloves to hand over the the remains. That's so nice. Yeah. So like they had done all of this and now they had to do it again. Right. Al Amber's dad um, wanted to come live with Kim on Long Island. But she doesn't want him to because she's kind of garbage. She's like, I can't take care of him. (laughs) You know, and he literally says, if you get the chance and you see her, tell her to give me a call about Kim. Yikes. But anyways. Lorraine actually pulled some money together to get Megan a headstone. And Greg complained that it wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Greg actually met, by chance, Officer Weed. When Officer Weed saw his last name, he's like, wait, you're Megan's brother? (laughs) And Greg's like, oh my god, Megan told me all about you, like how important you were to her. And after Officer Weed gets a letter in the mail, inside is a picture of a little kindergartner. And Lily had written him a letter saying, "Um, Nana says you're real nice and you knew my mommy. She was nice too. I hope you like my picture. Nana says I'm beautiful just like my mommy. Love, hugs, and kisses. I, when I tell you, I started crying. When you just think of, like, a kindergartner, like, having to write that. So, Missy is pregnant again. And she thought of naming the son, like, it's a boy. And she's like, maybe we'll name him Liam, like, after my brother Will. Like, it's Mm -hmm. a shortened version of William. She goes, but she told her husband he could name the baby. Right. So, the baby's name's gonna be Dominic. Sir. All right. Okay. Um, But Maureen and her brother are buried next to each other. And there's a law, so she didn't want to cremate Maureen, um, her mother did, but there's a law in Connecticut that states mm-hmm. you cannot cremate homicide victims, so she had to be buried, and she's like, thank God. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. That actually makes sense, because then, yeah, if right? you have to, yeah, that makes sense. Exhume them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is very painful for a lot of, um, victim families, but, like, yeah, but, but sometimes if it's gonna help. Yeah. No, I definitely understand that smart, honestly. And she, Missy's um, activism has intensified. She wants to get the Long Island serial killer on the FBI's most wanted list. Uh-huh. Um, even though he's unidentified, there are other people on the list that have not been identified, too. Right. Um, and somewhere down the line, she eventually wants to move to Stamford so she can be closer to Long Island for when they eventually catch this guy. Right. So she, so Lorraine has planned this next vigil in December of 2012, um, it was two years after the bodies were found, mm-hmm. and she's surprised when Kim arrives to the vigil. Mm-hmm. She's seven months pregnant with her seventh child, due on Amber's birthday. Oh my gosh! And so, just before spring, Amber take uh, Missy takes her kids to the park, and she looks over and she sees this little boy and his dad, and she does a quick ass double take and realizes it's Aiden and Steve. Oh my gosh! Who she that's hasn't crazy. seen in years. Right. And that is actually where the story ends. So, a little quick update. Mary is dead. Um, She was stabbed to death by her other daughter, (laughs) who is in prison um, at this point. Oh, my gosh. Her other daughter is mentally ill. um, And that is what the 
the they believe the cause of the death <laughs> not the cause of the death but the cause of the death um that being said if you would like a more cohesive update on the actual investigation again i encourage everyone to go watch that unraveled because it really does give you a more broad picture of where the investigation is today and how much the Suffolk County Police Department really blocked and bundled and fucked up this case in so many levels that I will be shocked if it's ever, if it's solved in our lifetime. Yikes. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. I need like two days to process all this information because there's like four <laughs> victims. So that's four times yeah. the uh, information. Yeah. So it was like, it was hard with Shannon's because her bones, she was missing her hyoid bone, which in the rest of the victims, I think they were cracked, which is a sign of strangulation. Mm -hmm. um, but her hyoid bone was missing. So the doctors can't confirm if she was strangled or not because they don't have the bone there to, to do that. Right. Um, and they also confirmed that there was no drugs in her system. So I'm very interested to know if they tested the bone marrow in the bones because that will tell them if she had long-term drug use or if there were drugs in her bones when she died. Um, but I really loved how much this story focused on the victims. And I know I just put you through it for three hours of recording. But, like, again, it's one of those situations where I feel like if I don't tell everything, I'm not doing it justice. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> my brain is fried like like it's hard it's hard to pick out what isn't important because it's not my story i don't know because i don't read these kinds of books because yeah. because simply because it's like i would never be able to be anyone who writes these kind of stories because i wouldn't be able to make those choices mm -hmm. you know yeah no i completely agree um but yeah, no, I I thought he did a great job and it was very thorough. I'm shocked the people that he talked to talked to him at the time that this was written. Mm -hmm. Because again, this was written like probably a year after the bodies were found. Because this was published in 2013, so he's probably writing it in 2012, which was right after the, like two years after the bodies were found maybe. Right. So for him to get interviews with the police commissioner with... Joe Brewer with Peter Hackett, like, with the rest of these families. He does have straight interviews with them. So I encourage people to read it if you think that either of these men did it. I am firmly on the team of um, James Burke did it, who was a police officer or a police person um, involved in this case. Again, watch Unraveled um, because I my brain is, like, on fire. Um, and I f firmly believe the cops were covering it up, but that's just my hot take. Right. Um, and please, we probably should have, I put a, should have probably put a disclaimer in the beginning that these are all, it's all information from the book. All of my opinions are my own and they are all f speculation. So please don't sue me. <laughs> now, that being said, is there anything else you want to add? Um, no, but I'm really excited for my book next week. Should I? It's a really big one. Should I? Should I tell? Should I give you a, a just give you the the title? Yes. I think it'll build the hype. So I'm gonna cover yes. Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, 
next week. I've never read them. I've never watched the movies. So I'm completely a fresh face to this all. Oh, wow. Yes. So I have not, and for anyone who's going to interact with us, I've not read the second book or the third book yet. I'm in the process. So please don't spoil me. I'll be really upset. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be really, really sad. I've not seen the movies. I literally don't know what happens. Um, So please don't spoil me. But I'm really excited. I really liked it a lot. Um, I have seen all, uh, I've seen pretty much all the movies. Retained absolutely nothing. Okay, so this will be interesting. Anything. Because I was like, oh my gosh, Francesca's going to just sit there bored because she's going to know this all. And I'm going to be like, oh my gosh. And then this thing happened and it was like, (gasps) no, like I have like the visuals of the movie in my head. Could not tell you who Orlando Bloom plays. Could not tell you. He plays Legolas. That, yeah, nope, couldn't tell you who that is. I know, um, what's her face? The Wasp is in it from Marvel. Don't know. Yeah. I just know, like, how visually beautiful the movies are, but I do not know the plot. I don't know anything that happens. Could not tell okay, you. Okay, so, so this is gonna be fun. This, this will be super fun. So yeah, I'm super excited to give that to everyone. I think I might cover all three, although they will be broken up. I will not be covering yes. one after another, because that is boring. In my opinion, at least. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Yes. I'm really excited. It's going to be great. Okay. So you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. You can find me on Twitter at FranchToastix with an X. And on Instagram at Francesca Hope. And where can they find you? You can find me on Goodreads, Alicia Reads 13. Or on Storygraph, Just Alicia Reads. And we'll see you for the next one. Bye.